Welcome to Acute Conversations, the official podcast of APTA Acute Care, where we share engaging conversations about acute care physical therapy so you can connect to your profession. I'm Ashley. And I'm Leo. Today we chat with Daniel Dale. He is a clinical assistant professor and the assistant director of clinical education in the Department of Physical Therapy at Mercy University. We discuss the value of simulation, how it prepares our students for acute care, and how curveballs are related to all this. Let's welcome our guest. All right. Dr. Daniel Dale is a certified healthcare simulation educator by the Society of Simulation in Healthcare and is also a certified lymphedema therapist. In addition to his teaching and clinical practice, Dr. Dale also serves as an educational consultant for early mobility, a company for consulting services and early mobility program development and management of major hospital systems countrywide. Currently, Dr. Dale is the immediate past president of APTA Georgia, a chapter of the American Physical Therapy Association. And that's just two days ago. Was that when your, when your tenure ended? My presidency ends at two days. Oh, in two days. In two days. I gotcha. Now, Daniel, I actually first met you at this recent CSM in San Diego because you were on the Oxford debate talking about simulation. And it was, it was a great time to see you all with all of the, the gimmicks and the, and the uniforms. And I, you were part of the team that was for simulation to count towards clinical ed hours. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so I, I'm glad you recognized me as I was dressed up for the Oxford debate. For those that aren't familiar, the box, you know, getting dressed up and having a good, friendly argument with with our our fellow clinicians, educators, and the panel, and, and really the audience gets involved. But yes, I was dressed up as a crash test dummy, and we talked a lot about kind of the use of simulation. We were talking about mannequins as well as any other types of simulation to enhance the fidelity of our training for our students. And ultimately, we were trying to argue the idea that simulation could care towards clinical education hours that are required by captain when we look at physical therapy education. That was such an entertaining debate. I loved it so much. And I remember your crash test dummy outset like big X's and it wasn't it yellow or something. I I think we had something where you blue, but I had the Yeah, it was green. Yeah. It was funny. I think I took a picture of all of you. So how did you get involved in simulation? Can you take us back? Like, how did that start? What interested you in it? And how did you become like kind of this expert? Absolutely. So I, I had a couple of different experiences. I can take myself all the way back to when I was in school, in the program that I graduated from. We did a heavy dose of what I didn't know at the time was truly simulation. It was truly case-based learning. We had standardized patients. We had equipment that was added and it allowed really uh, myself as a, as a future clinician to get acclimated to an environment before I went and it enhanced my confidence, my ability to perform in that environment. Then, you know, fast forward as I started my clinical career and, and worked for a while, I transitioned into academia about seven years into my clinical career. And when I was brought into academia, I was, I was kind of terrified with the idea of enhancing our acute care education. And looking at how we enhance our student performance, we had students who didn't feel confident or competent when they were heading out to clinic and finding that the onboarding time for those students was a little bit longer in acute care environments. You know, as we think about all of the aspects of the interdisciplinary care, we think about the lines, the tubes, the medical acuity, our students wanted to be up to speed a little bit faster. And so the, the chair of my academic program 
tasked me with the idea of let's enhance this. Let's figure out how we can do it. And two weeks into my time in academia, I was given an opportunity to shadow with two of our nurses in our Bachelor of Science in Nursing program here. And they're both CHSC certified healthcare simulation educators and took me through the ringer of just showing me all the things simulation can do that they do in their, their nursing program. Everything from, you know, the ICU and early mobility simulations, death and dying, grief and mortality, you know, all the things that they're doing in simulation to make these real life experiences come to life in a, in a training lab. And from there, I got hooked. I immediately started pursuing it. And as Leo said, you know, I'm a certified healthcare simulation educator through the Society of Simulation and Healthcare. I got involved in that arena. And then here we are today and, and really trying to push it in physical therapy education as well. So the certified healthcare simulation educator, I guess anybody could do that. Tell us more. Is that, is that, how long is that program? What's required of it? So the, the certification exam is through the Society of Simulation and Healthcare. And to apply, it's actually a pretty rigorous application process. You have to have some background in healthcare as well as healthcare education or training. You have to write up a portfolio. And then that's considered by the accrediting agency there that provides the certification. And then you sit for an exam. So it is a self-study exam that you study for, much like some of our specialist certification exams in P2. Mm -hmm. And once you sit for that exam, you can become a credit, become a certified healthcare simulation educator. It's interesting. I don't have the exact stats, but physical therapy is not very well represented in that, in that arena as we're starting to grow in simulation, but I've been encouraged. I've been hearing more and more from colleagues who are pursuing it and, and getting that certification. So it's been exciting. That's cool. Congrats. Thank you very much. So Daniel, with that experience with the nurse educators, what did you learn and kind of what, what can we learn between this, the difference of what they're doing in nursing? Cause I feel like a lot of the things that are successful in nursing, we, especially within acute care physical therapy can not necessarily just copy and paste, but we can take a lot of some of those important facets and apply it. Because again, there's, there's different, different nuances. What are the things that you learned with nursing simulation that we can apply to PT simulation? That's a great question. Yeah, there's a ton of really valuable things. That you know, I think the first thing I learned that is eye-opening for me and has been eye-opening, I think, for all of us that are involved in simulation is the amount of work that goes into creating a quality simulation by following standards of best practice. So the International Nursing Association in Axel has standards of best practice for creating simulations. And that's a heavy part of the certification training. And that includes things like needs assessment, making sure you understand what your simulation is trying to do, designing it, thinking about how you're going to facilitate it, who's going to be doing pre-briefing and debriefing, what are the outcomes you're going to achieve, you know, what measures will you use to measure those outcomes? There's so much more that goes into it that when I started and I was first getting the idea, again, I walked into nursing doing a simulation. In my head, I just thought magically this just happens. Like the students come in, everything's set up. Wave your wand. Yeah, it, it, it just happens. And I go step by step. And then when I started talking to them, they're like, no, this has been a, a, about a month or two of preparation and making sure that this goes as planned so that we meet our outcomes and objectives are there. Students can go through the performance. They're psychologically kept safe in the environment where they're able to make mistakes, but learn from mm. it just immediately opened my eyes to, this is not just a hand me a paper case and act it out. Mm. Um, and I think that was eye-opening. I think the other thing that was eye-opening for me is thinking about the amount of resources that go into simulation. 
in order to create the best fidelity and the best environment. Now, that's not saying you have to have, you know, the $100,000 lab and all the bells and whistles. You can create simulation where you are. You just have to understand the differences and what you're able to use to create fidelity and why you're using it. So it was immediately clear to me there was so much more to learn just in those two weeks. Okay, so this is really fascinating because yesterday, do you want to know what I did yesterday? <laughs> I did a sim lab. I did a sim lab. From 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., I was in a sim lab all day long. So I'm kind of curious now that I have an expert here. I want to know, like, was I using best practice? So can you kind of fill us in for students maybe who don't know what sim lab's like or sim in general or for educators maybe who haven't done this before? What elements do you need for an effective simulation experience? What are like those bare bones? Absolutely. So again, referencing those in Axel standards, there's 10 standards of best practice. And I named a few of them sort of like needs assessment, simulation design, uh, facilitation, pre-brief. But, you know, if I had to pick a few, the, the big things, needs assessment is the first. And actually there's some good education coming up on the American Council of Academic Physical Therapy on needs assessment. But that's going through and really assessing who are your learners? What level of learning are they at? What are your outcomes or objectives that you want to achieve? How much time do you plan to spend? What resources do you need for the simulation? And then what experts can you draw in to help you with clinical expertise and making sure that the simulation plays out the way you want it to? Once you've done that, there's also pilot testing, making sure that it works as, a, as it's planned to, because you have to consider you know, in a simulated environment, we want to try and keep students in that realism as long as possible. Mm -hmm. They enter the room, it's really, they're in the simulation. It's like they're walking into a patient and there's no, you know, potential help. They can't turn and look for help necessarily unless you've built that in, but they're in the environment. So we want to keep them in there. And that's where that pilot testing comes in to say, this simulation runs as I expect. And, and even in pilot testing, we try and break the simulation, you know? If I go way off script, is there something that I can do that would throw off the whole simulation? Such as if I have an acute condition and I act like I'm in a lot of pain, is the student going to decide not to get me out of bed when the goal is to move? Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that there's nothing in there that throws them so far off that their decision-making affects the outcome. And then I think one of the biggest kind of standard things that needs to be in a simulation that a lot of us don't quite understand until we go through some of that training is the debrief. Mm -hmm. When we create a debrief, it's not just sitting down and telling students objectively what they did right or what they did wrong. Debrief, and depending on your facilitation method, is meant to get the students reflecting on their performance, being open and honest and sharing what they did, how they would do it differently, how their actions affected others in a really non-judgmental, psychologically safe way. That, that's where our students will learn best in sharing in those experiences. So making sure really those aspects, and again, there's, there's all sorts of other things, but I think those are some of the biggest ones that really help drive home and create that optimal simulations. So Daniel, let's say for like a student, for their very first simulation experience, how long does that last? And then how long is the debrief? Because I'm assuming that the debrief happens immediately. So there's an opportunity for, for feedback right away. So what, what does the time frame look like? that. Great question, Leo. So we actually just did a, a first simulation with some of my first year students and it encompasses a lot of different things. So I'll even backtrack before the simulation. 
in order to, I keep saying the concept psychologically safe. That's what we're going to make standards there. Again, we want to make sure students come in and they recognize, you know, if they're going to be graded on the activity, it needs to be clear. If they're not graded and it's really a formative evaluation, they mm -hmm. can just come in and relax and be a part of the simulation and perform their best. They need to know who's grading, who's involved, mm -hmm. who's watching them, because that can also throw them off. And then as you get into it, you know, what I did for our first year students is I met with them days before the simulation to talk about their expectations and go over my expectations. So things like here are the behavioral outcomes and objectives that you're going to be doing. You're learning objectives for the simulation. Here are the resources I want you to study before you come in. So referencing classwork and material they've done so they can come in prepared as if they were for a clinic day. Mm -hmm. And then talking again about that psychologically safe environment, orienting them to the environment. If it's a new room they've never been in, that can be anxiety producing as well. So we want to show them around the room, show them what lines or tubes will be in there. For one of my simulations, I use a high fidelity mannequin. And that can be really off-putting if you've never worked with a mannequin that's breathing, blinking, and can voice and make noises. So for the students, I bring the mannequin in while it's on and let them see it, touch it, feel it, so they know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And then when we go through the simulation, it's a lot of logistics, a lot of scheduling, making sure I have, you know, the optimal mm -hmm. amount of students in there that I want. And then that debrief component you talked about is usually right after the simulation. And standards of best practice really look at creating a debrief that's two times the length of your simulation. Wow. Because really that's where the learning occurs. Oftentimes the students go through their activities, but just as we do sometimes as clinicians, we may not remember everything we did in a tense or stressful moment. We, we kind of recall what we think we did. Mm -hmm. And then that debrief allows us an extended period of time for students to really kind of decongest, let, let the emotions come out of whatever they just did, and then really focus on their performance and provide that learning opportunity for them to improve upon the next time. So I'm curious, when you have a sim and you're trying to get the students to actually move somebody, so let's talk specific to acute care, right? Because this is what this is for, acute care. You know, you've got your patient with your lines and leads and your monitor and everything's going in real time. Do you use, because I've heard mixed things about, do you use actors, like simulated patient actors who you pay and hire to come in and do it? Do you use your students? Do you use your faculty? Do you use Te like teaching assistants that you bring in from the clinic. I'm just curious, like, what is the, I guess, what does the research best practice say? And then in reality, what do people actually do? Yeah. So I, it's a great question, Ashley. It kind of goes, and it goes back to the resources of the facility and what people have access to. When you look at kind of best practice, it, it doesn't necessarily say you have to choose one or the other, but I, I would say most research points towards using standardized or simulated patients, which are typically actors. One of the things you have to consider is, say you or I were playing the role of the patient. As a faculty member, even though we're getting in the role, the students still see us as faculty and they still respond differently. They're, and they are so much more intimidated. There's, they make a mistake. They're ashamed if it's something you taught them and, you, mm. and then they forgot it. And so I, as best practice for me and what we do in our institution, we try and remove faculty from being in that role. Faculty are more in the observing and they'll facilitate the debrief, but they're not actually involved in the simulation. Some programs have finances to be able to fund a, a standardized patient pool. And that involves training the standardized patient, paying the standardized patient for their time and evaluating and providing feedback. 
standardized questions. Because you also have to look at their performance and kind of rate them on, did they follow through? For most of our simulations, we tend to actually use our student performers. And we talk about that in the first kind of pre-brief is you will be performing these skills on a peer, recognize that your peers in the same place as you in learning. And so they have the same experience. And we also do debriefs with the patients who are also, again, classmates. We'll debrief of them separately from the student played the therapist. So they have a chance to debrief separately. So there's no kind of psychologically unsafe things where somebody says, oh yeah, you know, my partner did this on me and how, how could they choose that? So we have a chance to kind of debrief in that way. And that seems to work fine. But again, it comes down to, to resources. We are lucky enough with our, our health professions that are here on campus that we have access to mannequins as well. And if it's a high complexity kind of ICU or acute care where my main behavioral objective revolves around being able to change lab values or change, you know, a blood pressure reading on the go. I'll have to use a mannequin because, you know, as cool as we are as humans, I don't think it must actively change our heart rate and blood pressure really quick. It's a massive scenario. So I need something that can respond accurately in the moment. I can recreate that with some of our computer technology and mannequins. That would be such a cool skill to have. Like, that would be an amazing superpower. I think you marketable across it really would. Are you a DPT or PTA student that has had an interesting or challenging clinical experience within acute care? Or did an acute care internship change your future professional goals? We'd love to talk about your experiences in a future episode. Click on the link in the show notes if you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast. Absolutely. Danielle, I wanted to bring back this point that you said that you said earlier about having the students feel okay to fail. And I'm just thinking about how simulation, especially in acute care, how it's such a great melding of the two. I'm just thinking about other forms of practice in physical therapy. I've seen simulations done where maybe with pediatrics, but I just feel with the, the whole environment is so far removed from your typical DPT student entering a program. And you had mentioned a little bit about this in your some of your information you gave to us before the podcast about the exposure to acute care. So not a lot of incoming students know acute care. And so just familiarizing themselves with the environment. But I love what you said about letting the students know that it's okay to fail. So how do you, can you talk a little bit about that and creating that culture? Absolutely. So it is, it's one of the tenets, I think, that simulation stands on. And you'll hear this from other professionals as they talk about it is you create that safe space to fail. Mm-hmm. And so important, especially, you know, anytime we're talking about patients, but especially when we're talking about acute care, ICU care, there's not a lot of room for error. You know, when you're going in to treat a patient, we never want any patient to receive harm. But in that environment, there's a lot of areas where a student can be intimidated and potentially make a, a harmful mistake. And so when we talk about clinical education and trying to ready our students for that area, I want them to make mistakes in my simulation lab when I'm setting up acute care and ICU mobility, because it is the best way we learn. It's that feeling of, oh, I'll never do that again. Like, mm-hmm. I realized I got tangled up in the lines and the tubes and the patient's, you know, vent popped off and then I, I couldn't respond or I didn't see the emergency happening. I'll never do that again. Mm-hmm. But I did it here in a safe environment. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was harmed. You know, a little bit of self-confidence was probably, you know, bruised down the way. But it gives us a chance to have that safe environment so that when they go into patient care and they start to see that same scenario unwind. They go back to their training and they think, I remember 
I need to go ahead and assess this, or I need mm-hmm. to make sure I set up my environment a little bit better because this is complex. And it's so important these days, especially because in academia, because of the pandemic, because of, of what's going on with COVID, a lot of our students weren't allowed any acute care experience and are starting to enroll in our programs, you know, right. starting to get back to that. But observation-wise, students were kind of held out of acute care. So I've had students who have never set foot in an acute care hospital, unless it was with a, a parent, a loved one, a family member, but never as an observing PT student. And so they're coming in with no knowledge of the lines, the tubes, the acuity, the interdisciplinary communication, just the noise, the busyness. And so we try and simulate all of that. So before they go, even on like integrated short-term experiences, they've had some experience and they know a little bit about what to expect. And again, they've had a chance to make mistakes. I also agree with you. And that is so important. Like, and it's one of the things I'm not in clinical education anymore, although I think technically I always will be in some point, but it was one thing for my acute care CIs and even like someone, I think you're absolutely right. Like let them make mistakes, safe mistakes, right. That are going to harm the patient. And even in real clinic, I tell them, let the IV pole stay plugged in and let them get halfway out of the room and tug and realize it's not going anywhere. They won't forget to unplug that IV pull again. If you jump in and intervene, they're not going to learn anything from that. I say that all the time. Like, let the catheter stay on the bed until the last possible second. And then you go, hold on. They'll be like, oh, no. Like, I'm not going to do that again, you know? So I completely agree with you. I do have... Yeah, I was just going to say, it's such a change for me because having been a clinical instructor and taking students all the time in acute care, you know, my goal there is, my license, my patient, I, I want you to treat them, but I have to protect them. And so as soon as something starts to look off, you know, as a CI, I'm starting to step in and you balance where you can be as a CI. How close mm-hmm. do I need to be? What's my level yep. of guidance and safety? You want the student to have those experiences, but you don't have that freedom in acute care when it's a patient in front of you. Mm-hmm. Now at simulation lab, I can sit in the back of the room and just watch. Yeah. It happens. Knowing that ultimately the learning experience will occur through the experience and then the debrief. When we talk about it and reflect on that performance, the learning has occurred and nobody's got. Well, and the students aren't interrupted. Like they're able to go through their own clinical thinking, clinical reasoning, problem solving in real time with nobody else intervening or interrupting. Because then, like you say, as a real CI in clinic, it's really hard to be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. and say or do nothing. Whereas in simulation, it is designed for you to say or do nothing, right? And just let them falter. And there is such great learning that happens. The one thing I find, though, and I feel like I've figured out a way to, to not make this happen is the suspension of disbelief. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I feel like students get in this rut where they're like, oh, this isn't real. So like they might giggle at things or not take things seriously. How can we help that suspension of disbelief component, knowing that we can never truly 100% simulate a real hospital room? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Ashley. So what, that's one, another one of the, the terminology things you'll hear in simulation is suspension of disbelief. If I... Come in as a student, like you said, and I know the person I'm treating. It's in a classroom I'd normally in. There's some area where the students then start to lose some of that fidelity and realism, and they don't treat it as such. And so part of that is in 
pre-pre-pre-pre preparatory material, we talk about that suspension of discipline. How are we going to try and make this real? What's my expectations of you as a student and participating that you're going to take this seriously? And we give them the why. You know, this isn't just another teaching day. This is an opportunity for you to practice clinical skills you've learned in preparation for applying them to real people. And so we talk about that aspect. Some of what can help with that, again, goes back to that standardized patient. If you can bring in, you know, paid actors and train them where the students don't know them, it becomes much more real to them. They're performing for somebody that doesn't know them mm-hmm. and don't know back. So that helps. Additionally, I find a lot of times it really helps is if your behavioral objectives, your learning objectives support it, interdisciplinary steps or interprofessional steps. Because then they're there with another colleague who's got a totally different mindset, a totally different set of, you know, experiences and behaviors that they bring. And you find that your students are trying to represent the profession well. So they get into the mode a little bit more. So again, only if your behavioral objectives support that, don't just throw another profession in to complicate things, but make sure there's learning for both. I find that that's good. And then we also talk about confidentiality, which helps them suspend us. I mean... In our program, some programs will do summative or high stakes simulations where there is a grade attached. And then obviously, confidentiality is a big thing. In our formative assessments, you know, we don't provide a grade, but we do talk with our students about if you share this with the next group of students coming in, they don't get the same experience as you. They don't get to problem solve or figure it out. They're kind of having their educational experience ruined by the fact mm-hmm. that you shared what's going on. And so part of suspension of disbelief is also recognizing this is one of the more powerful educational tools we have. We've got to protect it by keeping it confidential. That's great. And then I want to ask you too, because again, walking away from CSM, there's a lot of information regarding the literature and the science behind simulation. What are some of the results? And one of the things that was mentioned is that there are surveys of students after simulations about their confidence. But the confidence doesn't necessarily equate to what's their performance and competence when they're actually out in the clinic. And so you had mentioned that you're starting to look at some of this within some of your research, correct? Yeah. So we're getting. So what's interesting about where we're at, and and again, simulation is not a new novel idea in healthcare education by any. Our colleagues in medicine, nursing, pharmacy have been doing this for decades. The standards have been around. The Society for Simulation has been around almost for, I think, 20 years now. We're just happening to catch up in PT in regards to how we utilize it. And I think, and this is a personal thought of mine as I've talked to colleagues and, and being a part of the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, the other professions have been engaged more because a lot of what they do may be invasive and dangerous and they can't practice it all on each other. You know, we think of surgical techniques. There are mannequins that do live birthing. You can't necessarily just turn a student loose and wait for the right time to have a student in the room. When births occurring, we think of, you know, emergency procedures, invasive procedures such as IVs and things like that. Our colleagues have been doing that in other professions because out of necessity, they can't do that. We're also seeing them do more virtual reality and augmented reality now. So they have those aspects as well. In physical therapy, when I've talked to colleagues who are a little bit more I won't say imposed, but a little bit more less on board with simulation. It's because they use the aspect of, well, our patients have to move and, you know, mannequins can't move. And, you know, I understand that. There are times where a mannequin's appropriate, but simulated patients, standardized patients. And we can do that through all of our, our aspects. So 
kind of to circle back to your question, Leo, some of these other professions have looked at competence, but they've also looked at competence and how this is related to clinical care. I'll reference one of the studies we talked about in the Oxford debate is a study that comes out of the NCSBN. It's a national, I'll get the acronym wrong, but it's for nursing and state boards of nursing. And what they looked at, they looked at a multi-site study. They had multiple universities looking at their graduates. They looked at it over a number of years. What they did was they looked at students who participated in normal clinical education nursing program versus students who did some form of substitution of simulation for their clinical education. And I think what they used were values of 25% of ClinEd was substituted and 50% was substituted. And what they looked at was they took some student measures of confidence. They also then looked at passing rates on the NCLEX exam. So how, how good did they do in passing? How well did they do in their clinical education with their preceptors? And then they looked at postgraduate. They looked at things like six months satisfaction of the hiring employers. How did they like these individuals that either did regular clinical education or did some form of substituted simulation for clinical education? And what they found, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize the result, most of what they found was that even students who had up to 50% of their clinic time substituted with simulation did equivalent to the group that had full clinical education. They were able to go through, they came through, they were liked by their employers, they passed the NCLEX at similar rates. And so, you know, as we look at it in physical therapy, a lot of what we're looking at right now in our literature, and I, I actually published a study on this as well, is only looking at the company. And I think, you know, my recommendation, not to, not to even downplay my own literature that got published, but we've got to get beyond confidence and liking simulation because I think those are two questions we know. Students feel more confident after they do simulation and they like it. It's an active learning technique that meets the needs of kind of what is our generational learners, right? Mm-hmm. Where we need to move our research, I think, in physical therapy and across some of our other rehab disciplines is then that competence. Does it relate to increased confidence or equivalent? sorry, competence, increased competence or equivalent competence if students who do simulation go into clinical education. You know, our goal is, you know, I think about things, if I can get my students more comfortable, there's less errors in the acute care environment. It's less stress on our clinical educators who are trying to promote that for them. It's less onboarding time beside. Hopefully it's students that have now been exposed to acute care and are more interested. So potentially they're new hires down the road to help fill some of the gaps that we have in our acute care clinical site. So ideally it's that exposure to students and then increasing that competence. Is a student who goes through simulation more competent, more ready to handle the challenges of acute care? So I think we should stay tuned for your research that hopefully is going to come out in the future about that. And I would argue students do find it a valuable experience, but some don't always like it. They'll be like, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I was sweating. But yes, I learned so much. I think they like it hindsight more than foresight, maybe. Well, (laughs) our discussion with students is we always talk about, you know, usually the students who say I was so nervous are our students who haven't gone out to clinic yet. Right. And then they come back and say, I felt just as nervous in clinic. And I realized yes. now what you were doing. <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. Uh, we have, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I wanted to share a really fun simulation that we do. That is kind of like what you talked about, Ashley. We do one where our behavioral objectives are all in the effective domain. 
the mm. entire simulation, the students are told they're doing a musculoskeletal exam. They're going to do an acute musculoskeletal eval. Pretty simple case. But they're also told during, and this is done in our pre-brief, so we don't deceive them. We don't throw them. But we go through and we tell them, you need to work on, you know, your behavioral objectives are focused on communication, professional, Mm -hmm. managing interprofessional discussions that may come up. And during this competency, about 10 minutes in, they have distractors who come in, who are played by any, anybody. We've had people outside the department that come in and play the role of your average everyday interruptions in acute care. You know, it might be the physician coming in to talk to the patient, a step in front of the therapist and just start talking. It might be dietary services. It might be the, the cleaner coming in and cleaning the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we see how the students react to these interruptions. It could be a family member. We have one when it's a family member coming in to videotape the patient or talk to the patient and interrupt. And we watch as they kind of, you know, they're kind of regressing as they go through the simulation where they Mm -hmm. have this great plan. They were ready to treat this patient and now there's somebody else in the room. And as they work through it, that's the whole reflection. We're not worried in that simulation at all about their clinical skills. Like we tell them in debrief, I'm not going to ask you questions because my behavioral objectives (laughs) here are about how you manage the interprofessional, you know, aspects. And it's really fun for the students when they do come back from clinic, they'll tell me day one, that exact thing you simulated. <laughs> and I knew how to manage. I was, I was so much better prepared when I got interrupted. I'm laughing because it's so true. Like every day in acute care and I, you just giving me an idea and that's not a simulation I do, but now I'm thinking, hmm, I have to head you up on some sharing of information so I can do that one as well. And now an announcement from APT Acute Care's nominating committee. Hello, my name is Kate Kugler. I am the current nominating committee chair. I am reaching out because I want to share the current positions that we are recruiting for involvement within APTA acute care leadership. This year, we are looking to slate candidates for the president, for the bylaws chair, for a delegate, and for a member of the nominating committee. This is also the first year that we're looking for individuals interested in SIG leadership in total joint and residency and fellowship. So we are looking for individuals to be in, slated in the chair, vice chair, and secretary positions for each of those SIGs. If you have an interest in running for one of these positions, or if you think of a colleague that also might be a great fit for one of those positions, there is a nomination form that will be linked in the show notes for the episode. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So be- before we transition, I wanted to ask you for people maybe who want more information or resources on simulation, I know our professional associations have a ton. Can you kind of maybe direct them where to go to get more information other than just this podcast? Absolutely. So good news. We have a ton of resources that are starting uh, that are physical therapy specific. So again, if we go outside of physical therapy, I, I think your best two resources, the Society for Simulation and Healthcare, SSIH.org, is going to be the place to go. They have simulation from all of our different medical professionals. They host an international simulation conference, which is unbelievable. Like going there has completely changed my perspective. The The exhibit hall is filled with virtual reality and gaming. So if you're into technology, it is the place to be. Last time I was there, they were actually hosting for 
EMS and paramedics. It was an active shooting drill where they had EMS and paramedics treating somebody in a battlefield that was simulated. Wow. Um, That's intense. A little bit intense, a lot of, lot of simulation, but it's really neat to see. But that is a go-to resource. Again, in Axel, the International Nursing Association has their standards of best practice. Those are accessible online and they will walk you through how to create a simulation using standards of best practice. And then again, back to discipline specific. We're really excited through the American Council of Academic Physical Therapy. We have the Simulation and PT Education Consortium, SIPTEC, and, and I'm a, a member of the nominating committee for that. And what we've done over the past couple of years is created resources for individuals who are doing simulation and physical therapy education. We have our old simulation template, which actually uses the Inaxial Standards of Best Practice. So if you're designing a simulation, it will walk you through step-by-step. Here's what I need to do for a needs assessment. Here's how to write objectives. Here's the things I need to consider regarding fidelity and design. It will walk you through that step-by-step to go through that simulation template. Really awesome job and shout out to the, uh, the individuals on SIPTAC and the supporting individuals who created that. And then I'm really pleased to announce in about a month and a half, we'll be releasing our simulation library. So ACAP has helped support along with a few other companies, SimuCase and PhysioU, are helping to support a simulation library where individuals can go in, create using that template, a simulation, submit it for peer review. So we have a group of peer reviewers, oh, wow. journal, much like a database, where we'll have experienced simulationists peer reviewing your simulation, providing feedback on standards of best practice. And then you'll get it back, you can edit it, put it in, and then it will be part of a database where people who are ACAT members can pull simulations that other people are doing. So Ashley. That's my, amazing. My effective domain one will be up there, hopefully, and you'll be able to pull it down and you can alter it, you know, use it as you see fit. But we're trying to create the simulation library for individuals that are going to be doing simulation and physical therapy. That's um, brilliant. That's and a great idea. Resource, it, and it's in the making. I can't give you a deadline on it now, but SIPTEC is also in the making of creating a simulation in rehab professionals training. So we're looking at all rehab professionals. We're going to be creating an actual course that people can take. It'll be hybrid. You'll have some online asynchronous and synchronous work to do. And then about a two to three day in-person simulation course. It'll be held across the country. It'll be in simulation labs. So we'll have access to technology. So people get hands on with how to create a simulation, how to utilize the technology, debriefing strategies, really specific. So there are training courses out there, but there's nothing specific to rehab profession. And we wanted to make sure we had something that was specific. So that'll be coming hopefully within the next year also out of SIPTEC. So there's a lot of really neat stuff to help get us up to speed with some of our other colleagues. I really wasn't expecting all those resources when I asked that question. You guys are doing some amazing stuff, really. Shout out, shout out to my SIPTEC board members and, and to ACAP for helping to support that. ACAP has been very behind this development of all of our simulation resources. They've been in full support of us. We're really pleased. So Daniel, real quick, because we're going to go into our rapid responses, but you know, this, your, your high effective domain simulation, you like to throw your students curveballs, things that kind of throw them off. So, but you have a history of, uh, of uh, throwing curveballs possibly. Can you talk a little about some of your athletic, your athletic career there, Mr. Daniel? Oh, Leo, I love that transition. That was brilliant. That was one, right? <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going. <laughs> yeah, so Leo, you're alluding to, I played at Kennesaw State University here in Atlanta. 
as a left-handed pitcher. So mm. I, I got away with being a little bit lower on the velocity scale and a little bit shorter. Left-handed pitchers can get away with that. But I played collegiate baseball and was offered to play semi-pro and actually carried on in an adult men's league here in Atlanta with a few ex-major league players. Wow. A few years ago until I was worried that my rotator cuff was was going to give out. So, uh, but absolutely, I've loved baseball. It's actually how I got into physical therapy is, you know, I think it's the common story for most of us. We, we had some sort of injury, usually an athletic injury. I, I was injured playing baseball. I went through physical therapy and thought this is a career yeah. for me. So I, I love that transition. It was well done. <laughs> My seven-year-old son is into baseball right now and going to the games is so fun. I'm loving him. Becoming a total like sport mom. I just started T-ball with my son. I've got my daughter in soccer and T-ball is for fun. And I'm loving it as a baseball dad. I'm just. Yeah, I bet you are. You get a volunteer to coach. Wow. Say it a little clear for T-ball. There you go. Very cool. Now, Daniel, have you, are you familiar with a rapid response round? I, I have heard a couple of them as a, as a listener to the podcast. Okay. Fantastic. Ashley, are you ready? Yeah. Let me do my timer. Ready. We're going in a minute and a half. Perfect. All right. I'll start off. Daniel, what's your most favorite Major League Baseball team? Atlanta Braves. Atlanta Braves. There we go. Are you like Leo? Do you tell dad jokes? Yes or no? 100%. Yes. And in class as well. Oh, (laughs) students love them. Absolutely. Daniel, what's your most favorite way to exercise? I actually still play soccer. So I've switched that up and enjoy playing rec league soccer. Save the shoulder. Nice. So we know you have some Chicago roots, but Chicago pizza or New York style pizza? I hate to say this in front of Leah, New York style pizza. I love it. You're from Crystal Lake. You're not from Chicago. It's on my side. I love it. Then maybe Chicago. The deep dishes is up for me. So, Daniel, if you were going to walk into a patient's room, because you still work at the hospital sometimes, what would be your entrance song, walking into the patient's room, if you had a theme song? Oh, I think that's a really tough one. I, I think I'd like to move it. Ah, there we go. That's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, my gosh. Would you rather be the hero or the sidekick? I think I'd be the hero. I think I'd go, go in that direction. But I definitely need a sidekick. Of course. If, uh, if they were going to make a movie, a biopic about Daniel Dale, who would play your character? Who would play you? <laughs> I, that one, I don't know. I, said, I, I would hope somebody handsome. I mean, <laughs> you, get, you had I, Chris Pratt vibes, I think. I it wouldn't be true. I mean, I, I'd hope they'd portray it as somebody handsome. It wouldn't <laughs> represent you. <laughs> All right. Our final one. You know you work in acute care when complete the sentence. You have a pair of scrubs and shoes as a backup. <laughs> I hope those of you out there that work in acute care or, or are going to go into acute care, you understand the value of having that. I was going to say, listen to this podcast at all, you're going to notice a theme. Yes. Yep. Backup shoes, backup scrubs. <laughs> always, always be prepared for the worst. That's right. That's right. Well, Daniel, where can I listen us find you if they want to find you? Absolutely. You can find me. You can find me through SIPTAC. I would encourage it that way. I think that's the best way. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, but happy to connect in any way. Also happy to connect via email. But yeah, I think SIP Tech is probably the best way because we continue to push that simulation education there. Happy to connect that way. 
Well, thank you so much for joining joining today. This was an awesome discussion. Thank y'all for having me and Leah. Sorry to disappoint you about the pizza. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> okay. You know Ian Flannery, so I could put out a shout out to him and so did we have a good connection with that. So you're, you're, Absolutely. You're, 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 we're we're gonna debrief this podcast afterwards in true STEM form. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> we would like to thank Daniel for joining us today. Acute Conversations is the official podcast of APTA Acute Care. It is hosted by Leo Argulis and Ashley Poole. Executive produced by Katie Brito and Edward Mathis. Music by Alexia Action from Pixabay. Sound effects also from Pixabay. For more information about APTA Acute Care, please go to our newly updated website, aptacupecare.org and be sure to check out our show notes or links and resources from the academy if you found value from our podcast please be sure to subscribe follow and share with your friends and colleagues join us in two weeks for a conversation with barb smith and carrie lammers where we'll talk about their work on the research committee thank you for listening and may your shoes and scrubs stay clean today and oh and curveballs yeah yeah Curveball is perfect.